Let's look to our Lord in prayer. Father, we're going to set aside now personal preferences. We're going to set aside now personal biases. We'll set aside personal opinions when it comes to matters of our take upon life in this world. These are the moments where we want the Word of God to speak to us and through us. And so we're going to have to open our minds and open our hearts to what it is that you want to say. If there's anything that's going on right now in someone's heart, maybe it's an issue with another person, family member, co-worker, neighbor, address those issues, Father, in the, in the dynamics of the heart. Let the Holy Spirit work. Give us a glimpse, Father, of who you are, a better understanding of what you've done. Take us to the cross of Jesus Christ. Position us there. Allow us to be able to understand the significance of why Jesus died in our place for our sins. And free us up, Father, to be willing to be used by you for your glory. You know the needs that are here. You know the struggles that that person brought into this service. Stuff that they're having to deal with this coming week. It's on their hearts, it's on their minds. And maybe they're wondering right now, and what does God have to say about this? And what is God going to do about this? Keep taking that person to the cross. Let them walk to the empty tomb. And remind them that Jesus is alive. That God is sovereign. You are in control. And we are to be worshipers of you. So Father, with our Bibles open, warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. As again now, Father, we've come here to see Jesus. And him only. We're praying these things again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. James DeLoach is a pastor at Houston. And he writes, Some time ago I saw a picture of an old burned-out mountain shack. All that remained was the chimney the charred debris of what had been the family's sole possession through the years. And in front of this destroyed home stood an old grandfather-looking man in tattered clothes, and a small boy clutching the one toy that he could hold on to to escape the burning flames. And it's evident in this picture, he writes, that the child is crying and beneath the picture were words which gripped my heart. They were simple words, and yet they speak to life today. Profound words about God and about life. Here are the words. Have hope, child. Have 
have hope. God is not dead. As one looks at that picture, one wonders, well, who did die? When looks, one looks at that picture, one has this sense that this projects a sense of helplessness. But then a quote from G.K. Chesterton stands out. Hope means hoping when things appear hopeless. Is that where you're at? Say it again. Hope means hoping when things appear hopeless. Or else it's of no virtue at all. As long as matters are really hopeful or circumstances appear hopeful, this is just hope is just simply flattery. No. It is only when everything appears hopeless that hope begins to find a strength. Now this morning, if you find yourself looking at something or experiencing uh, a dynamic with someone that appears to be hopeless, now the real test of Christianity kicks in Can I produce in this relationship or in these circumstances valid hope when everything appears to be hopeless? Now this is what the Apostle Paul is beginning to address here as he builds off of what we covered last time together. And he has not taken us far from what Moses has experienced on Mount Sinai Everything looks so hopeful when you're on the mountaintop. But when one peers into the valley and the Israelites have turned their back on God and are worshiping a false God, it would appear as though everything is hopeless. So we find now Moses having to determine, am I going to derive my hope from the mountaintop experience with God? Or am I going to allow for a sense of hopelessness kick in and overcome me when I look into the valley where the Israelites are found? There's always a tension between the mountains and the valleys of our lives. Between the hope in God and the hopelessness that society seems to produce and the issues that we seem to have to continuously face. And what the Christian's got to be able to do is to bring hope into what appears to be what is hopeless. You're doing that this morning. What I want to do now is to draw out three significant aspects of hope and how to bring a sense of hopefulness into what appears to be hopelessness. And the first aspect comes out of verse 12 down to verse 16 where because we have a basis for what I'll call real hope, real hope, note, first of all, the boldness we possess through God's Spirit. Now, the entire chapter, as I've said, refers to the way in which the Holy Spirit's at work. And the Holy Spirit brings a sense of hope to that which appears to be hopeless. So he begins now inspiring the Apostle Paul with these words, 
since we have not merely hope, now he wants to build with his words upon that idea. So now think about yourself at this point. Here's a we there, includes you, includes me. Since we have such a hope, here is really the first aspect of hopefulness. Notice the linkage between what we will call boldness and hopefulness. When hopefulness breaks down, boldness breaks down. People become increasingly timid. They weaken. They withdraw. Now the danger is withdrawing from God and allowing a sense of hopelessness to so overtake us at this point, we no longer have the sense of boldness to enter into God's presence. And so what we see here now in this tension between the mountain of Moses and the valley of the Israelites, faith and the faithless, hopeful and the hopeless, we have such a hope that we, he says, are, not could be, are very bold. You remember that story about Pastor Sylvester his plane in the Toronto airport, sight of that busy terminal, its lights, planes, activity. And the pastor was sharing a story about his own plane that would, he would fly in and out of that airport. He was asked if he ever encountered any problems taking off and landing a small craft at an airport dominated by large jets. Love his response. He said, quote, Yeah, my plane might be small, but I have the same rights. I have the same privileges. I have the same access to that airport as anybody else. And I can approach it with a sense of boldness. This is what the writer Hebrews will continually remind you and me of. We have access to God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. So we can come into his presence not with timidity, but with a sense of boldness because we have a valid base for true hopefulness. And this is what now Moses would have been articulating and now what Paul is building upon as he now inches us forward out of verse 12 into verse 13. But now you and I are going to have to build a bridge from past into present. Exodus 32 through 34, you're going to want to read it several times this week, get a sense of what was going on, the dynamics between what was happening on that mountain of hope and the valley of hopelessness. Not like Moses. Not like Moses. He would put a veil over his face, you see, so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Stop right there. 
Now, first of all, what I've got to understand with you is that the Jewish people are being described in these verses. What's being described has got to be understood in relationship to Moses receiving the word from God and the Israelites, in essence, rejecting the word from God. They are religious people. They are looking for a real experience with spirituality. But beware of a real experience of spirituality void of the word of God. And so now, we are not to be like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Now you and I have got to begin to ask ourselves some serious questions. What is he talking about? Now we've got to bear in mind, first of all, that he's not contrasting grace with the law He's contrasting grace with the legalists who have distorted God's moral law, twisted God's moral law, and as a result created a false religious experience for the people that they are supposedly ministering to. These legalists had been hounding the Apostle Paul. Whenever Paul would move from one setting to another, then the legalists would appear on the scene and try to twist what the Apostle Paul was saying. Now, you see, grace did not annul the law. So what did fade away, or what was rendered obsolete here, was the ministry that Moses and Aaron introduced. And what needed to be removed was the veil that covers Israel's hearts when Moses, the writings of the Old Covenant, is read. So I thought about that, and I thought about the number of times in which perhaps those that know here Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you've shared the gospel with someone who is religious. You are on the mountain, and you've experienced the glory, and they're in the valley, and they're anything but experiencing the glory, but they're religious. Your responsibility and my responsibility is not to lift the veil. Your responsibility and my responsibility is simply to communicate truth, regardless as to whether or not they're being, they are being protected by their own, their own veils. Alan Shore writes, As I entered young adulthood, I was like every other Jewish person I had ever known. Hearing the name Jesus produced in me a complex sense of emotions. I was baffled by the plethora of churches in the country, crosses, statues, paintings that I saw in virtually every direction that I turned. I couldn't fathom it. Add to this the suspicion of the Christian world that was practically encoded in my DNA. You wouldn't be surprised that getting to know Jesus was not necessarily high on my list of priorities. Besides, what could his death possibly have to do with me? He'd been crucified. Well, so what? It's a sad moment in history. What could the death of a man 20 centuries ago possibly mean to me today? But it was during this time of questioning that someone showed me Isaiah 53. And these verses leaped out at me. 
And for the first time, I was able to make a connection with this hopeless sufferer who had been given an oversized portion of rejection, grief, humiliation, and suffering that seemed to characterize the history of my people, the Jews. Taken together with other pieces of knowledge that were coming my way, I began to see that this could be Jesus. Isaiah 53 helped me to understand two things of critical importance. First, that the suffering of the man of sorrows is meaningful to today. Not only in the abstract, but also in concrete ways that help us to understand ourselves and our circumstances when they appear to be hopeless. As the suffering of Yeshua becomes real to us, it somehow helps us to bear our own suffering. And after I made this connection, I could no longer see Jesus as alien to Jewish life. It was quite the opposite. He seems to me to be the embodiment of Jewish life, the Jewish experience for all time, destined to suffer at the hands of the world, yet finally to be vindicated via resurrection at the hands of God. He's on to something here. Now, when you and I begin to understand the significance of all this, we are able to bring hopefulness into a setting of helplessness and hope. Lessness. So here's Moses now coming down from the mount. This is the historical background. Puts a veil over his face. Israelites won't gaze at the outcome of what's being brought to an end. But then in verse 14, we are told their minds were hardened. They were religious people, yet they were hardened people. Religious people, but they were hardened against God. It is very possible you're trafficking among people that are incredibly religious. And still hardened against God. And you're wondering, why can't we find common ground? The veil that was over the minds of the Israelites at that time was the veil of unbelief. Something's got to happen. Somebody is going to have to be able to lift that veil. For in verse 14, their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. I can't lift that veil. I can present truth to the one whose heart is veiled. The sovereign God is the lifter of the veil. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil, you see, the veil is removed. My early 20s, when Warren Wearsby was my pastor, he tells the story of a particular time in which he was ministering to a man and about to baptize this man who was Jewish. He writes, it's amazing how their minds open to the scriptures after they've been born again. One man told me, quote, it's like scales falling from your eyes. You wonder why everybody doesn't see. 
what you see. The veil is removed by the Spirit of God, he writes. And they receive spiritual vision. The religious unbeliever has physical vision. Religious physical vision. But when one is born again, you and I have spiritual vision. We don't merely operate on the basis of eyesight. God in his sovereign workings has given you true insight. He has lifted the veil. And now, for the first time in life, you can see. You can see. And there's clarity here now. Vision is no longer blurred. And you say, well, Gary, how does this all come about? Verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. This turning, some would refer to as repentance, involves turning around and going back. There's a town we've spoken of occasionally in Canada. It's called Wabash. It's a remote part of Labrador, Canada, completely isolated for a period of time. But recently a road was cut through the wilderness to reach it. Wabash now has one road leading into it and thus only one road leading out. If someone would travel the unpaved road for six to eight hours to get into Wabash, there's only one way he or she could leave. You've got to turn around. What to put it in my perspective, experience. In our days in Pennsylvania, we lived in a cul-de-sac. We were tucked in in the back end of the cul-de-sac. It was a complex maze of things. But there was only one way to get into this cul-de-sac. A lot of streets woven around in the cul-de-sac, you see. Time and time again, people would stop at my door or on the sidewalk and ask, how do I get out of here? I get it. There's only one way out. You've got to go back to the way you got in. Now, for some of us, we're going to have to go back to our first love. We're going to have to begin to ask ourselves some tough questions. How did I get into the spiritual cul-de-sac where I have been driving around, driving around, driving around, and it seems as though I'm utterly confused by what's here? And then the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me, breaks into my thought process. I say, oh, yeah, I'm stuck in a cul-de-sac. I'm going to have to go out the way I came in. Is that where you're at this morning? But when one turns to the Lord, here it comes, the veil, you see. The veil that's here is removed. So when everybody turns to the Lord at this point, they begin to see with clarity what God means all along. So Moses has to come down from that mount, and they can't bear to look at the glory of God radiating on the face of Moses. So Moses mercifully covers his face. Verse 17. 
to be able to communicate truth to these people. But now what the Apostle Paul is doing at this point is he's taking this historical event and he's giving us a sense of modern day understanding so we've got a better comprehension of what he wants you and me to be able to embrace. Israel Cohen understands that. Once I was in the Navy and away from my parents, and I had the opportunity to do some new things, not all of them strictly kosher, you see. One afternoon, as I sat alone in the barracks, a young sailor came over to me and asked if I was Jewish. And when I told him I was, he asked me to teach him about being Jewish. Obviously, he wasn't. And as I started to tell him, he interrupted me, can you teach me about being Jewish from the Bible? Well, I paused. I hadn't read one in a while, looked for one, got a hold of a Jewish Bible, but didn't know where to turn. And so he asked me to turn to Isaiah 53. Then he said, read this aloud. And I did. And at first I thought I had the wrong Bible. Was this sailor tricking me? It sounded so much like what my Christian friends used to say about Jesus. But this is in the Old Testament. This is the Jewish section. And then the friend explained that Jesus was Jewish. And the New Testament was written by Jews, and that it tells all about the Jewish Messiah that was spoken of in the Old Testament. Never in my life had I been so confused. I would say, he's on a cul-de-sac experience right now, trying to find his way out. But you see, after three hours of talking and reading from both of our Bibles, especially Isaiah 53, in my Jewish Bible, my confusion started to disappear. I understood that I needed the forgiveness offered by Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, but I also knew I was Jewish and that Jews do not believe in Jesus, and so I was torn. I had a sleepless night on my hands. But I could no longer resist doing what I knew I had to do. I prayed to God and told him that I believe Jesus is the real Messiah. And I asked his forgiveness for the many ways I had failed to live as I knew God wanted me to live. A few moments later, I went to sleep peacefully. And when I awoke, it was as if somebody, somebody had lifted the veil. Now, maybe right now in your extended relationships, you are so burdened for somebody, but you're trying to communicate truth through the veil. Can I say graciously, it's not your responsibility to lift the veil. It's your responsibility to communicate the truth. And watch how God works graciously to lift the veil. This is the essence now of what those verses are all about. Is you're building what I'll call a practical, applicational bridge from the past at Mount Sinai into the present of 2018 living. And because we have a basis for real hope, there's boldness, boldness that we possess through the God's Spirit. As a grandfather looks at a grandson, says, have hope, child. God is not dead. So now in the midst when you are feeling the sense of hopelessness, here's a section of 
Scripture now to begin to think through. We have a basis for real hope. Now you've noted, first of all, the boldness, you see, that we possess through God's Spirit. I want you to notice now, second of all with me, the freedom we experience with God's Spirit. They are meant to be connected together. So now you're up to verse 17. And I want you to notice the phrasing. Now. It starts with the word now. Always love the relevance, the contemporary feel of the wording of the Scriptures. Always building a bridge from whatever it was written to us. Now. The Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now, begin with the phrase, now the Lord is the Spirit. He's developing a a logical conclusion for you. What you will notice with me at this point is that he is attributing deity to the Holy Spirit. Quick review. Last get-together, when we were covering the opening verses of chapter 3, we contrasted the Holy Spirit, calling the Holy Spirit it, versus calling the Holy Spirit a person. The question is not how can I get more of it, the question is how can he get more of me, and that is a matter of spiritual humility. Now, when you begin to connect the idea of boldness, it seems as though in our culture today you show me a bold person and you're not necessarily going to have on your hands a humble person. But biblically speaking, where biblical boldness is found, authentic humility is experienced because you've gone to the cross of Jesus Christ and you've been liberated from the penalty of sin. And it's not your doing, this is God's doing. Because we have a basis for not false hope, real hope, you now note the experience, the freedom we experience with God's Spirit. And you keep working this through. And you say to yourself, all throughout chapter 3 is this powerful teaching on the Holy Spirit. And now he adds this phrase, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So when the Spirit is not only around you, but you find that the Spirit is within you, You are able to say, and I'm able to say then, that I am finding true freedom, true freedom in Christ. Now here's the irony. We live in a culture where people love liberty and they love freedom. We're going to celebrate Independence Day in the coming days. But there's a tension in our culture. There are those that seek freedom, but they seek freedom from Christ to be contrasted by those who experience freedom in Christ. Those outside of the Lordship of Jesus Christ are seeking freedom from Christ. Those under the Lordship of Jesus Christ experience freedom in Christ, but what the believer and the unbeliever share in common is this whole idea of the quest for freedom. That gives you a starting point for conversation when you're talking over Independence Day weekend, by the way, about where true freedom is to be found. You've got something to work with there. But you've got to introduce authentic freedom. 
So authentic freedom is found now when you and I begin to think about the seriousness of what Jesus Christ does on your behalf and my behalf for our sins. Now, the song just before we got up to consider this exposition dealt with freedom, freedom from fear. And so my mind was racing at that point because in Romans 8, verse 15, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, verse 16. But all of that is based upon, verse 15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. The spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And my mind goes back to a story about the freedom lady, almost 20 feet high, face framed by a crest of stars. You know what I'm talking about. Shield of stars and stripes in her left hand. But the story behind this is that the sculptured freedom lady was brought from Rome during a fierce storm. The captain ordered some cargo thrown overboard. Historian James Helfley tells us the sailors wanted to include the heavy statue, but the captain refused, shouting above the wind, No, never, we'll flounder before we throw freedom away. Now the challenge is, is that when we seek freedom from God, rather than experience true freedom in God, the reality is we are throwing freedom away. It's because we're allowing circumstances that appear to be hopeless to get the best of us. But greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And here is where true freedom is found, in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, where I'm free from the penalty of sin, freed from the power of sin, and someday freed from the presence of sin when I'm with my Lord. Which leads us now to this third aspect, you see, of the way in which the Holy Spirit is connecting us to hope. That thirdly, because we have a basis for real hope, now note thirdly with me the glory we behold from God's Spirit. Verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is what? The Spirit. Begins and ends with this whole idea of the Spirit, this third chapter. So we've got to unpack this for the remaining few minutes together. He now is linking us back once again to Moses, but now what he's telling you and he's telling me is that we with unveiled face are beholding the glory of the Lord. And what we remind ourselves of is that the word became flesh and, we, and dwelt among us and we beheld his, what his glory. Speaking of course, speaking of course of Jesus Christ and are being transformed into the same image, Jesus Christ. Now, when you see that word transformed at this point, it's an interesting word. 
This idea of being transformed is the same word that was used to describe Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. And get this, it describes a change on the outside that begins on the inside. You see, God works from the inside out. And so you can have inner hopefulness when outwardly everything seems to be hopeful. Lessness. But this transfigurational, this transformational account describes a change on the outside that comes from the inside. It's the Greek, English word for metamorphosis that's used to describe the process that changes an insect from a lava into a pupa into a mature insect. Again, the change comes from within. Moses reflected the glory of God you and I radiate the glory of God. And as we become more and more like Jesus Christ, as John MacArthur would put it, you are simply stepping up to a new stage of glory, followed by another step of glory, followed by another step of glory, beholding the glory of the Lord or being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory, you see, to another. Now, this is powerful. Because what you and I now are beginning to understand a little better of what Moses experienced when he was on the mountain. And then he had to go into the valley and see everybody rejecting God's glory. And yet the glory of the Lord is to be possessed by him and him alone. And what fascinates me is that not only the first coming, but the second coming of Jesus Christ is tied to the glory. In fact, when Israel is also restored to her land in Isaiah 35, verse 2, it speaks of the glory of the land. And furthermore, in Isaiah 66, verse 19, from the east to the west, the nations will one day revere the glory of God universally. In order to affect that day, God will send... Israel's restored remnant to the nations that have not yet heard of God's glory, and they're going to proclaim his glory among all the nations. And you see it in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 19. All this is tied together, first and second comings of Jesus Christ, but not only over time, but in your life as well, being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And then you take a deep breath. You look carefully at this. Because then it reads, this comes not from you. This comes not from our circumstances. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And then you pause, and you ponder this man who's looking at life circumstances, and while the child may view everything as hopeless, here's this wise grandfather putting his hand upon the shoulder of this child. Have hope, child. Have hope. God is not dead. Let's stand together. The religious unbeliever and the secular unbeliever would have looked at the tomb of Jesus Christ for a couple of days and view it all as hopeless. 
But we realize that three days later, you brought hopefulness out of a hopeless situation by raising the second member of the Trinity from the grave. So if there's anybody here now in this second service who came in today feeling as though life is hopeless and I feel helpless, take them back to what is being described here. We're not meant to live like the hardened Israelites down in the valley. We aren't to understand the glory of God revealed to Moses up on the mount. It's time to start ascending the mount. It's time to drink in the glory and to realize, Father, that, that what stands behind the grace of God is the real glory of God. And that brings hope to our hearts. And for this, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.